Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trainway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trainway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Ann Marrow. In the mid-2000s, Alan Brown became fascinated with the nettle that grew wild near his part of England. Nettle was once used for textiles throughout the world. Alan decided to learn more about this fiber, and it led him on a seven-year journey that culminated in making a dress from wild nettle. His project is the subject of a film called The Nettle Dress. Alan, thanks so much for being with me. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk to you. So I had the good fortune to get to preview The Nettle Dress. Can you tell me about that project and about the film? Yeah, sure. So the film uh, that my good old friend Dylan Howitt put together was shot over seven years, and which is the time it took me to learn about how to get fiber from nettles, get the, the whole process down, and then set about spinning enough nettle to actually make a garment. How it all started actually was um, seven years ago. Dylan was just coming off the back of another film that he, he had worked on. And he just wanted to dust down his day-to-day jobbing route of, um, you know, getting behind the camera. And he knew that I was starting to spin. So he thought that would just be visually quite interesting. So he come, he came over just to um, film me spinning on the spinning wheel. And I said, Dylan, while you're here, um, would you mind if we just shot a little how-to video? Um, as I literally had half a dozen people that I was in contact with online who were asking me about the process I used to extract fiber from nettles. So I thought it'd be easier if um, if we just if I could just show them visually rather than type it to them each time. So yeah, we shot a little short film called Nettle for Textiles, and we put that out for free on YouTube, and it got uh, shared on Facebook and a few other platforms. And yeah, to our complete astonishment, it, we you know we thought there'd be a handful of people in the in the world who'd possibly interested in such a niche thing, but it turns out there were millions that, that it got shared so many times we were just really blown away so off the back of that i i set up a little facebook group called nettle for textiles and with a couple of friends here in the uk who had met previously who were also interested in nettles um, we set up a website of the same name and the thinking really was that even though this is clearly an ancient art making textiles from nettles um, it's a kind of long forgotten one and it would just make so much sense to get all the enthusiasts together in one place and actually just freely share knowledge and um, information and historical bits and pieces that were unearthed 
So yeah, that that really kind of got the whole nettle thing gained some momentum, and uh, yeah, it was probably a few years, le- a couple of years later, when I I thought actually it would be really nice to round off this project by actually making a, a whole garment rather than just little samples, um, and that's really how the nettle dress, which is the name of the film, came about. So Dylan just kept coming round and filming, filming me out in the landscape. And he, yeah, he sort of embedded the whole film in in the wider context of what was happening in my life, following me around um, out in the landscape, gathering nettles. And yeah, so so we just finished the film at the end of last year. And again, we've been really blown away by how it's been received. So yeah, it's been a most unexpected, unplanned and deeply rewarding uh, series of events. So people who know a little bit about textile history are aware that, you know, people used to make textiles out of nettle. But what most of us think about is the things that sting you. And here, nettles tend to be about ankle high, just the right height to to get you. So seeing you extract fiber from them. And in the film, you can see that the nettles where you live are higher than your head. They're extraordinarily tall. So... How did you start exploring getting the fiber from these? Well, years and years ago, I'd been shown on a permaculture course how to twist nettle cordage. And um, I'd got, well, the family had got a, a dog, Bonnie, who stars in the film as well. And um, yeah, so I was just spending a lot of time out with Bonnie, just exploring um, my local landscape. And I just sort of, I'd, I'd taken a wildflower ID book with me and I was interested in learning what was edible, what was, um, you know, healing all the different qualities of wildflowers, sort of on a foraging kind of thing. But I kept returning to nettles because they're just so ubiquitous. And yeah, and so I started, you know, remembering how to twist cordage from it. And then I was sort of making finer and finer cordage. And as I was sort of fiddling around with the nettles and scraping away at them with my nail just to sort of get rid of some of the unwanted vegetable material, I realized that what I thought was the fiber was just basically the bast and the fibers were hidden sort of within that. And once I got down to those, I realized, oh my goodness, these are really fine, beautiful, soft looking fibers. And I didn't know, I had no background in textiles at all, but I did think, goodness, these these fibers look like you could really actually make a fine thread and probably textiles too, although I didn't know how, how you would go about doing that. So I, I tried to just research about them and find out as much as I could about how you did it, what the processes would be. And I just couldn't really find anything practical, any practical how to's on, on how to do it. So, and certainly no kind of extant, uh, nettle cloth, even though I, I found references to it, it, it always seemed to have been at some distant point in the past. So I thought, man, I, if, if I'm going to actually feel what this textile could be and what it felt like, I'm going to have to set about doing it myself. So the two fruitful avenues of research were, one was the Nepalese, who they're an extant nettle community. They've been making textiles and cloth and straps and all sorts from their nettle, which is the Himalayan nettle. Nettle's a big family. And 
I so I tried their method of how they extracted their fiber. I'm sure some people could do it, but for me, I found that it kind of it just didn't work very well. I could it did provide fibers, but they were quite matted, quite sort of almost felted together, and just didn't seem to be the easiest route. So I kind of started to look at uh, hemp and flax, of which there's a much longer tradition, and it's still being grown to this day. So there was a lot more literature to find on that. And so I basically ended up copying those steps that both those fibers do, the sort of the retting, the drying, the stripping, the hackling. And what I found with nettles is even though those steps do apply, and that's essentially the method that I've settled on, and it does provide me with a very clean, lovely fiber, was that it's just strange. Nettles are just strangely resistant to any form of mechanization. So it really kind of, it just was actually more efficient in the end just to do virtually everything by hand. And yeah, I mean, although my early examples of, you know, I literally just used a kind of pin loom and just went over and under with the needle and created a bit of cloth. And that was hugely exciting, even if the resulting cloth was a rather disappointing, like an exfoliating scrub that I'd spent hours and hours creating. But I stuck with it. I, I could see the potential. And yeah, so I, you know, I learned about spinning. I connected into our local spinning groups and we have this beautiful network of guilds all around the country. And I think it was, it was just really the, the people I bumped into in the, in the textile community and the craft community was just really unlike any other area I'd sort of explored before. There was just such a generosity and willingness to um, share knowledge that, that I just found that absolutely in alignment with how I was thinking about these crafts, that they're too important to hold to yourself, that this is, this is a communal enterprise and everyone gains by everyone improving and getting better. So that was wonderful. And yeah, before long, I, I started to spin a bit better, spin a bit finer, start to work out where the limits of the, you know, of the threads were um, and continued weaving samples. And um, again, sort of borrowing from linen and flax production, I, I, I realized that there was quite a lot that could be done post-weaving to soften up the cloth, uh, scouring and beetling kind of, uh, I ended up sort of pressing it with a, with a heavy stone, although if I'd had access to a mangle, I, I would have used that. So yeah, I started to get cloth that I felt like this is approaching something that could be worn. Um, and that really kind of, you know, put wind in my sails. And yeah, and then I thought, actually, I think if I just stick at it, I, I, I will be able to make a garment. And yeah, that ultimately became the nettle dress. I do just want to back up for a second. You said that when you were processing the nettle, the bast fiber was what you wanted or wasn't? I think of hemp and linen as being bast fibers, you know, the the long Yes, they, they are. In my experience with flax and a little bit of hemp, I've done far more, uh, I've grown flax on my allotment and in my garden for the last seven or eight years. And with flax particularly, once you've, once you've retted it and you've taken it through the breaking and the scutching to get rid of the, the shy and you end up with the fibers, you're pretty much ready to spin. 
So it is a, you know, hemp, nettle, flax, I think are probably our three traditional primary bast fibers. And you're right, the bast is the, means the fibers are on the outside of the plant. But when you strip off the bast off a nettle, it comes away as a sort of flat ribbon. You don't get to the individual fibers hidden within that straight away. It requires an extra step where you sort of have to scrape away this outer bark. And as you do that, suddenly you, the, the inner fibers start to be revealed. Um, and that's, that's what you're after. So I think that did explain why probably nettles where other fibers came into certain areas or were imported or brought in over time, they took the place of nettle because nettle does require that extra step to get down to the raw fibers. So I think, I think probably nettle's heyday was probably very early on, like Neolithic, Bronze Age times when hemp and flax wasn't so ubiquitous across Europe. And I think, um, uh, there's a wonderful book called From Sting to Spin, which just got uh, reprinted last year by a woman called Gillian Adom. Um, she lives here in the UK. And I was lucky to hook up with her um, very early on. And so her book didn't really go into the details of how to process, but it did give you a kind of geographic feel of where nettles had been used and were still being used. And, and a, lot, a lot of tribes in the Americas uh, were using them. And there, there seems to have been, you know, it would have just been the most convenient go-to fiber for just twisting up some cordage to make lashings, to bind stuff, to tie stuff together. And I think for making nets. And I think the, you know, the nettle net etymology isn't accidental. And in fact, as Gillian uh, shows in a book, a lot of the European languages, needle, nettle, sewing all share the same root. So it definitely gives the sense that this is an ancient relationship and it would, the nettles do grow everywhere. I'm not sure if that was always the case, but I'm sure for many places, nettles were there for the taking. And I like to call them the the fiber of the landless because they they are just the one immediate forageable source of fiber and you know I think where other fibers weren't available it would have been worth your time using that fiber um and I think probably even more recently you know if crops failed or yields were low the beauty of nettles, even though it does require extra work to extract them, the fibers, is that they just take care of themselves. They, they grow where they want to grow and you've, you've just got to go and collect them. So yeah, there's, there's sort of pros and cons to them, but the fiber in and of itself is a really high quality fiber. I think it's even finer than flax. The only, the major difference when I process them is I end up with a much shorter fiber and that really kind of tripped me up in the early days. I was thinking, why aren't I getting a long fiber like the Nepalese or hemp or, or flax? And it, I think it just is a shorter fiber and after the retting and the scraping and the carding just breaks down into this much shorter staple length, which actually, in actual fact, 
I've found an, an advantage because I treat it very much just like a hand-carded wool. The final step is I card it on wool carders, and it can be used, um, just the fiber can be held in a hand. It doesn't need to be mounted on a distaff. So it makes it very portable and easy to work with in that sense. So yeah, it is a bast fiber and, and an awesome one. <laughs> well, and being able to spin brings out something that I found really exciting and moving in the in the movie was which was how you speak about spinning and the way that your life is incorporated into the thread that you're making and you know watching you with the spindle and this fiber turning it from something that you foraged into a thread was was one of the parts that I really enjoyed the most it seems like spinning is something that really got to you yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I've, I've got one regret in this life was that I just didn't find spinning 30 years ago because I just, I just found it so therapeutic and spinning uh, as a textile person, you'll know, but it was new to me just how much the spinning is the bottleneck in the process. The processing the fibers is slightly laborious, but you know, a couple of hours of processing will give me enough fiber to spin for weeks, probably months, because what I found so beautiful about the drop spindle in particular was I just spun in pockets of time that were hitherto unclaimed. So I learned to, to walk and spin at the same time. So when I took the dog for a walk around the park, I could spin. I could spin waiting at bus stops. I could spin chatting to people because I could just carry the whole kit around with, uh, with me in a pocket. It was always there. And that old adage of a, a spindle wins over a week, you know, a spinning wheel wins over a day, but a, a spindle wins over a week really proved to be the case with me. And so, yeah, I, and just having my hands involved, I, I, I just, I never found that, you know, people say, goodness, to, to make a one garment over seven years, you must be a very patient man, but I'm really not. But I think the spinning just showed, gave me so much back that it never, ever felt like drudgery. And, you know, most days it may only be five or 10 minutes spinning that I could fit in around everything else. But there was just that constant sen sense of a slow but steady movement towards a goal. And one of the themes in the, in the film is that uh, the children and I lost um, Alex, their mum, my wife, um, in the middle of all this. And, um, yeah, I, I, I really felt that the nettles had gifted me a means of uh, just being able to cope with it um, because whenever I started to feel overwhelmed, I just needed to get the spindle out, a little bit of spinning, and I, it just leveled me right out and, uh, yeah, just took the edge of things. And, and you know, I think I'm very interested in the, in the historical part of textiles because I'm just so blown away at what our ancestors achieved you know, the vast majority of our history pre-industrialization, just the scale of what we made collectively, far less people working in far harsher conditions were able to produce all these incredible fabrics and everything else that needed needed doing for an agricultural life. So, yeah, I just, you know, really felt like, oh my goodness, so many people must have been spinning a lot of the time and that being repeated over so many millennia 
it really must be deep inside us somehow. And that's how it felt. It really felt like a kind of sort of cultural memory coming back out. It's like, oh my goodness, I've tapped into this uh this thing that was just there waiting for me. So yeah, that's this the the spinning I, I really love. And yeah, like I say, it it never feels dull. It's kind of this combination of something that's eternal or at least, you know, throughout human history, connected with something that's ephemeral. I mean, when you look at historical ancient textiles, they they rot away. There, we don't have anything left of them. So, but but we can see that, for example, like Neanderthals created yarn. Yeah. So it's this this combination of a connection with people through time, but also understanding that that the actual product that you make won't be around forever. Yeah, and and, and again, that that's so such a salutary lesson of cloth and clothes were made not to be put in glass cases they were made to be worn they would get worn out they would be patched they would fall apart and you would it was something that you continually had to um, apply yourself to create so yeah i just I, I just find that wonderful that that it was you knew that that all these efforts would eventually be worn through or rotted away. And I mean, I've heard it said that the Stone Age should have been, could equally have been called the Cordage Age because the stone tools survive in the in the historical record, but all the, the cordage and textiles don't. But, you know, civilization couldn't have been built without that just fundamental skill of being able to bind stuff together, strap arrowheads to shafts, just all the everything that you need cordage and string for and yeah and that, you know wherever you go in the world people have found out exactly which plants will give you fiber and how to use that whether it's in basketry or textile production so yeah just uh, just like you say this a massive collective effort and knowledge which uh, which has been passed down to us so yeah i, I really feel it was um a very, a very tangible connection to the past, and then that other thing you you mentioned about this sense of um, somehow because the thread was created over time from this very personal perspective, that somehow it felt like some kind of prehistoric photography or or recording. Somehow that I just had this sense that my internal life, as well as the birds that were singing, the wind that was blowing, the sun that was shining, that somehow that is being twisted into thread. So yeah, cloth didn't suddenly didn't feel like a dead, inert material. It just felt like a, a repository of stories, even if you couldn't replay the actual story that somehow that that was embedded and it yeah it really gave me a different sense of of cloth and you know I think in the past when we were making cloth for each other as a tribe or as a extended family or that sort of thing that the cloth you wore was like wearing the the story of your people and the the story of their struggles and triumphs and joys and yeah, so yeah, my, my understanding of cloth just was was radically altered. Really, just just thinking of how how precious it is, but also just how much love and dedication is spun into it. It's interesting that you say that about it being both 
embodying love and also being very precious because one of the things I noticed about the dress that you made is that it it's a sort of a historic design or shape and it's a very low waist one <laughs> because yes. that that fabric is so precious but you turn something that is you know one length of cloth into all the parts of a dress yeah i mean and and that was really born from you know me not wanting to have to spin any more than I had to, given how <laughs> big a job it was. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was straight away going, right, what sort of, what simple patterns are, are out there which don't have uh, complicated shapes cut out of them? What what can be achieved just with squares and rectangles? And that that's so interesting, I, you know, and in the end, I kind of went for, well, in the books I, I referenced, it would be called a Viking era garment but i think really that pattern lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years as the basic undergarment that would be worn under wool if you could afford it from nettle or linen and yeah that again just like wow okay th this has been worked out how you can just have quite a narrow length of cloth because looms were narrower and they um so yeah i mean the the cloth that i that i cut the dress from was really just two foot wide and all the pieces that made it up were just cut out from that basic uh, sort of rectangular shape and um yeah just spun around and fitted in different ways and you know underarm gussets and although obviously that i made the dress for my daughter una to wear um, a, because she's smaller than me. So I, again, I had to spin less. I mean, obviously in the past, men and women would have both worn that kind of skirt-like kirtle uh, style cloth. But, you know, Una assures me that it is very, very comfortable, very, very practical. And, you know, that's sort of how I envisaged it. I didn't, I didn't want it to be a garment that sat in a glass case. I really, I felt like to honor how our ancestors viewed it, that it would be worn through. I mean, as it is, it's not really worn by Una so much, although she has worn it to um, when we've done uh, screenings of the nettle dress. But I've been bringing the dress with me and handing it out to the audience at the end so they can actually feel the cloth. And that's interesting, all those hands uh, feeling it, it, it softened the cloth up, so it's kind of doing it. And at some stage, it will it will start to come apart. It will start to unravel. But that's that's the, I think the true nature of cloth. It, it's it's designed to do that. And making the dress wasn't the end of the chapter. It was really just the first go. And I think I'm I'm already spinning finer than I was through much of getting all the the yarn together for that dress so you know i'll go again i'll, I'll make another thing and uh, i did make a shirt quite soon after i'm for myself to wear um, and i made that out of leftover nettle so it's about 40 percent nettle 40 percent flax which i've grown and processed and then some hemp that friends of mine uh, have grown and i've spun that so yeah, and it, it, it is amazing. It is just this wonderful feeling of, I suppose my spinning is, I'm starting to be get, get skilled at it, but really my knowledge of spinning and weaving and sewing are, are pretty rudimentary. I just learned enough for me to be able to create create this dress but it's enough to create functional clothing. And uh, yeah, and it, it's it's just 
actually really empowering to feel like ah, there is, it does take a long time, but it is within the realms of most people that this, that they can do this. And yeah, I, I found that quite liberating. I know a lot of people who have spent a very long time on a project, but the the consistency of working on something else and not being diverted by other side projects. It seems like in the film, it looks like you were consistently working on that. Is that true? Or did you kind of work on other projects too? Yeah, no, I worked on a lot of other projects. I mean, I, I to learn weaving, I I got yarns in, but I did, I really do enjoy spinning my own yarns, dyeing my own yarns, um, mainly just to get a, a real-time sense of is my spinning good enough to hold up? And, you know, I do notice that, you know, when I weave something using my own, you know, I spun a lot of wool. That was the main thing I've spun. I, there's wool to be farmers in the UK. There's such low margins in, in the fleece that it's often just composted or burnt or just left to rot in the field. So it's very easy to get hold of. Um, so I did a, I did a lot of other spinning and other weaving projects uh, to learn it. But again, it, it is interesting that even though my spinning, I feel is getting quite consistent and good when it comes to putting on the loom, it's a whole different ball game compared to lovely uh, machine spun yarn that's consistent and not fluffy and doesn't jam up to the threads <laughs> next to it. So, you know, but that that's all really practical knowledge that I find really useful. It's like if I'm using uh, commercially spun yarns, I can warp up the loom really quickly. When I'm using my own yarns, it's a three or four day job because I, I just can't wind it on. I've got to inch it on, go back, pull threads apart. And I just find that all really, really useful just to a, again, it shows me how skilled our ancestors were that, you know, that cloth would be made from loads of different spinners all servicing one weaver. And it must have been a consistently high level to to not slow down the weaving process. So I think the sort of hard fought for knowledge re has really sort of deepened my sense of of how good people were and what the level needs to be at. But even without that level, it takes a longer time, but it's still, it's still possible to, to create very um, characterful cloth. One of the things that I hear in what you're speaking about is a very strong sense of place, whether it's something that you're foraging or flax that you're cultivating or wool from farmers around you. And something I heard you say in the film was uh, something like a lime, a lime grown or... Yeah, lime kiln wood. Yes. Lime a, a, kiln a, wood, yeah. Yeah, that was just a, a particular wood that's uh, not far from the house, which um, I just discovered nettles really loved growing in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, subsequently, I, uh, I learned that that wood used to be where our local council dumped all their green waste. So from the you know uh, the the flower beds in in town and uh, hanging baskets and all that stuff ended up being dumped there so and there's also a silage pit where the um there was obviously uh, manure and straw and stuff was kept so i think all that kind of leached in and enriched the soil because nettle is quite a hungry plant. And I think that's the reason why nettles were so proliferate in, in that particular wood. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I think um, 
right at the outset, I just, I think probably I've always been interested in food growing. And, uh, you know, like I've mentioned a few times, we, we have uh, allotments here in the UK where you, at a peppercorn rent, you can, there's now a long waiting list, but when back when I got mine, there wasn't where you, you know, you, you get a patch of uh, of land which you uh, can grow your vegetables on and that's that's a sort of long running tradition so i think you know even though it's more of a symbolic amount of food that i grow i definitely um, have that sense of i know more or less what it takes to feed yourself or your family and i i know how much work it is but textiles always felt like man i don't know anything about that that feels like a I'm at the mercy of forces out of my control for <laughs> for clothes, and you know I really felt like I'd like to get some sense of reclaiming some of that. And really, it's only so it felt like the nettles was a was a kind of separate detour from what I from the food growing. But of course now you know I realised that oh, food and fibre that they're exact they're all part of the same thing. And traditionally, we would have grown flax as part of the many things that we grown if we could we could have we would have kept sheep and because fiber is so fundamental so yeah i really wanted to um see what i could create just from fibers that i could forage or grow or um, access within you know quite a small radius and you know i think um subsequently i discovered the whole fiber shed movement and we were very we were over in um california with the nettle dress earlier on this year and it was just the fiber shed learning facility was just up the road so we got to visit them and see what they're doing and i think uh, yeah it was just one of those things that i think i stum- luckily stumbled on and i think lots of people all over the place there's a sort of awareness and a dawning realization of how these very complex um supply chains that our clothing and textile industry largely depends on may not be the most sustainable way going forward so it was wonderful to to tune in t- to that movement and um you know I think it appears in the film that I, I may be like a, a hermit living in the wood kind <laughs> of guy, but I'm not. I'm very ensconced in in the 21st century, you know, through podcasts of which I've listened to many because when I'm sitting spinning, it just, it feels like that that in itself is an ancient thing, just gathering, to, gathering together to spin and listen to stories and news and all that sort of thing that, the, the internet and uh, Instagram and Facebook, all these things of YouTube have been such invaluable resources that I've been easily able to find out any anything I need to have learned. There's something like someone I can speak to or something I can look at. So yeah, that's um, tuning into that and seeing, feeling part of this growing awareness around textiles and how we produce them. Yeah, felt I felt, oh, that's great. There's lots of other people also plowing this particular furrow. And and I think there is a a feeling of like in the aftermath of Alex dying, my my world grew very small. My the the perimeters drew in and I was just, you know, looking after the family. And sometimes my only sort of connection to a wider world was just going out and uh, collecting nettles and but it was within a really small geographical margin so i think it i think 
events sort of led me to rather than looking for bigger and more, I sort of tuned into the familiar and going in deeper and seeing what what I could find and what I'd previously overlooked and realizing, oh my goodness, all these plants, they provide dyes. These plants provide fibers and they're all there right on my doorstep and have been under my nose all along. So it feels like it's really kind of connected me to a sense of place in a much deeper way than perhaps um, I, I had been before. And so, yeah, that, that, that's been another wonderful aspect to the whole thing. I wanted to ask you about natural dyeing. Uh, I believe that you're dyeing with, I don't know whether it's indigo or woad, some sort of blue in the yeah. film. Yeah. I use both, but... Mm-hmm. Thinking about historic ancient textiles, one of the things that I keep coming back to is at a point where people were subsistence farming and producing in every part of their lives, they took time and energy to dye, to change colors. And that always just kind of blows my mind that if if you could barely feed yourself and your family, there was still something valuable in having something beautiful. Absolutely. That, that that's that's really speaks to the heart of it. And I feel exactly the same. I'm just amazed at, at how like you say, when, when we're living at a hand-to-mouth subsistence level, we've we've carved out the time to make things more ornate or more beautiful than they need to be. Even working garments, you know, those incredible Japanese fishing things where they're patched and patched and patched and stitched and they just look incredible. And it's, you know, I think it really speaks to something deep within the human spirit that, yeah, that's, that, that somehow beauty and art and ornamentation is, is almost as fundamental to the, the properties of keeping warm, keeping, keeping you dry, keeping the wet, you know, staying alive, that it's so deeply embedded. And yeah, you know, it, it really doesn't matter where you go to in the world. People have gone that extra mile to, to create something beautiful when purely functional would do. And yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's wonderful. And yeah, I mean, it, it is a complicated history. I know that you know, when you dig into it, I'm, I'm always surprised that actually, you know, I thought the further you went back, the more free you would be to do your own thing. But how controlled um, societies were and the hierarchies were often um, determined what colors you could and couldn't wear. And the lower you were in the social order, the maybe the muddier colors you got. But nonetheless, we still would refresh old garments, even if it was just the dregs of the dye vat or, or you know, pot that, that everyone had taken the brighter colors before you. But yeah, there was still, it was still, even if it just brightened up an old bit of clothing, even a bit, it was, it was worth doing. So, yeah. And I think that, that, that just, it's a slight segue, but often when I'm speaking to people, I'm sort of envis- envisioning what a, uh, a low carbon, um, more localized cloth production would be. I think. I think we imagine that we must all we'll all have to go around looking like seventeenth century peasants, but I don't get that feeling at all. I think while there have been cultural restrictions in the past about what can and can't be worn and what colors can and can't be used, I think that I think that that deep 
artistic drive for beauty within us all. I, th- I think we will. The more we claim back some input and control of the cloth and clothing we make, I think it will become more and more individual and just as beautiful. I don't think we we necessarily will look drab and boring because that's not my experience. When our local guild have our um, biannual exhibition, I can I, I go to, into the town and I can spot straight away who's going to be coming to visit the, ex, uh, the exhibition because they'll be wearing stuff that they've made and it, it looks like... Uh, like rainbows have just burst out all over the place and people are wearing these awesome creative things that they've made. So yeah, I think it will go the other way. Do you mind if I ask you a couple nerdy questions about the dress? Absolutely. (laughs) Happy to. (laughs) So the warp that you were using, was that a two-ply or singles? It was a two-ply. And what I did, because of the length of time it took me to spin all the all the yarn I needed. I knew that a single wasn't going to cut it. A single, I think flax and hemp are often spun in singles because they're just a much longer fiber. So they're, they're just stronger. Because nettle ends up being quite a short fiber, I found in order to take the tension on the loom as a warp, it really needed to be applied. But because some of my older threads were thicker, when I tried plying them, I thought these are just going to be too thick. And possibly even the finer ones just may not hold up to the tension. So what I actually did was I spun very fine flax line fiber and I plied the nettle warp thread. So that, so they're a single of nettle and a single of flax. Although I think the just because I could spin the, the flax so much finer and it held its strength, I think per volume, there's much less flax in in the warp than there is nettle. So technically, I think probably 75, 80% of the dress is nettle and the rest was flax. And only in the warp, the the weft, I did a nettle single. I didn't ply that. And the the thread that I spun to actually stitch the dress together, I did a three ply and that was a single of nettle and two singles of flax. And I created a thread. And I'm really glad that I did that. People say, I oh, wouldn't it be cool if you'd done it all by nettle? And I have made 100% nettle cloth and I did make it work, but I had to use two different processes to do that. And I used an unretted nettle in the warp when I did the 100% nettle cloth because the retting is what weakens the cloth. But by being unretted, the fibers were they almost have the, a sort of fishing line, nylon fishing line nature to them. They didn't really lend themselves to spinning in the same way. So what I ended up doing with those was uh, sort of splicing lengths of thread together and then plying them, So, which, which I think in recent years that they're realizing this is how most ancient textiles were actually done this way, where the lengths of fibers were just twisted together in a very loose splice that just held them together enough. And then when they were plied, that's where the strength came from. So, but um, it was tricky and it was really troublesome doing it that way. So I knew 
it could be done, but I just thought I'm going to just use the flax as a safety measure. And it really worked. You know, my big fear was that I was just going to have loads of snapping threads. And from previous weaving experiments where I had had that happen, I knew what a nightmare it can Mm -hmm. turn into. So as it was, the warp threads were probably even over-engineered. I think I had three snap threads over the whole length of cloth. It was such a savior for me. And um, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, like I said, I used uh, just the pure single nettle uh, in the in the weft. It's a, a robust cloth. I've never tried to spin sewing thread. The properties that you have for sewing thread, that it has to be so smooth. Did you spin that at the end? Was that something that after you had built your skills through spinning the warp and weft? Yes. And, you know, I think We're so used to certainly polyester threads or nylon threads being so fine and strong. Um, And it just, when when I came around to spinning the thread, I was like, whatever I do, this thread's going to be thicker than the actual thread used in the weaving. That can't be right. How am I going to get around this issue? And I just happened to catch on a random podcast I was listening to that traditionally the the thread used for stitching was actually often thicker than the thread used in the weaving. So that just sort of gave me the confidence to go, all right. And because the even though it's comfortable, it, it, I think it would be considered quite a coarse weaving, really. I used 24 ends per inch in the warp. So even when it came off the loom, there was an, I didn't have to pierce through the fibers. I could, I could get the needle, even with that thicker thread and the thicker needle that it required to, to use it, I could just feed it through the, the natural gaps in the thread. And then after it was sewn and it was scoured, it just kind of shrunk down and, uh, the you know it, it kind of encased the, the the sewing thread in there, and uh, yeah, it, it's held up pretty good. It's it's I did I was too fearful to cut an opening in the in the the dress for buttoning it up or anything like that. So it's really just a head hole. So getting in and out of it's actually quite a wriggle, <laughs> but. Um, it's it's held up great. That nothing's uh, come loose or torn. So yeah, that th- that three ply really did the job. I was glad I went with that. And did you weave a band for it? Did I remember that? Yes. Um, so it's re- to, really to get the shape round the waist. It's tied with a belt. And I, in fact, I wove five or six different nettle uh, belts for it on an inkle loom. Uh, I wove quite a thick band. Sometimes uh, when we've done photo shoots with the dress, I've used that. And then I've got several different colored belts, nettle belts to mix it up and go with different things. And I, yeah, I wove in a lot of the images connected to the dress. I I wove a woolen uh, shawl that goes with it. And that I use bits of nettle sort of every so often just as a sort of gold gold colored thread in amongst the, the, the wool, which I largely dyed with woad. Yeah. Our sort of natural indigenous source of blue. I I thought about a lot about whether I should dye the dress because nettle actually really dyes well, much, it soaks up the color much better than cotton and uh, linen even I I found. So yeah, I, I thought about that a lot, but in the end, I just went for its natural color because I was just interested to see how that color fared over time. 
and that is interesting when it when it was first woven it was you could see different shades of brown and and beiges where different batches of nettle from different years had been spun so it was almost like a kind of dendrological tree rings or something if i'd labeled each skein that went into it, i could have gone oh yeah that was july 2021 that that band is and that one's august yeah but then um as soon as it was woven and and scoured and worked with the stone yeah just exposed to day uh, sunlight it's moved more and more to a sort of creamy white and the bands of differences have sort of mellowed out and it's become a much more uniform color so yeah and, and it's really it's a really beautiful color it, it really catches the light beautifully um so yeah but the belts i did dye just so to, to add add some color to the ensemble so the the dress was a seven-year project this is clearly just sort of a part of your textile journey some people feel called to to weaving first some people really see someone spinning and and feel like they have to do that how did you get started for me it was really just to to realize the the dream i had at the outset to to feel what nettle cloth felt like and as I couldn't find any actual physical examples of that cloth, I knew it would have to be made either by me or someone. And I thought, you know, I'm going to use this opportunity to to pick up the skills or enough of those skills to actually see the see this through and and make a piece of cloth myself. So yeah, I just I. You know, I, I knew spinning was the was the next step that I re- once I started to uh, actually get fiber. Um, spinning was the next thing I needed to learn, so I thought I'd give it a go, and I'm so grateful it, I did because I realized what could feel like a chore was actually a complete gift, and uh, it tapped me into spinning. And uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I love spinning all sorts of fibers, and I I think maybe coming into nettle did serve me quite well because I think I, I see with spinners that there's often a kind of, um, if, if you've learned spinning wool, that a sort of fear creeps in that spinning plant materials or bast fibers was difficult, um, which I don't think is the case at all. I think each, each fiber really tells you in pretty swift time how it wants to be spun. So I think, yeah, I, th- I think actually with the spinning and the weaving and possibly the sewing too, uh, I think the innocence, I think the not knowing what I didn't know actually was quite beneficial because I just jumped in with both feet and I didn't know there was anything to be fearful of. And Nobody told you it was supposed to be hard. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. I do teach people spinning from time to time and I say, this probably it takes a couple of hours to learn how to do it, but probably a lifetime to master. Yeah. yeah. I could see throughout the course of the film that there were a couple of spinning wheels and a couple of looms. And I thought, this is not just a single project. This is working its way into various parts of your life. Yeah, ab- absolutely. No. You know, I trained in fine art, in painting and sculpture, and I, I've always enjoyed making stuff. I, I made all the tools that I need for processing flax and I've made simple looms and, you know, I I really enjoy that side of it. But I think until I stumbled into textiles, I was always an artist struggling to find their medium. I worked as a baker for many, many years because I really liked that hands-on. It felt like I was just knocking out pots or something like that. So because of the diversity of, of things within textiles, 
I'm, I feel that there's there's the whole big circus arena to, to play in. And, you know, I bounce between things. Sometimes I'm really into the natural dying and the spinning's pretty consistent. But yeah, I'm not weaving all the time. I wouldn't call myself a weaver. I sort of weave once I've built up enough um, yarns. But I, I just totally love the process. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been trying to teach myself knitting. I'm a very slow knitter. But yeah, any, any way of constructing a textile, I'm fascinated by, and it's almost—it's more of a case of trying to stay vaguely disciplined to get better at the things I'm already across, rather than the null binding. Oh, I want to know how to do that, <laughs> or you know, horsehair braiding, or all these many, many, you know. And most recently, just stitching, just mm-hmm. just hand stitching. Uh, I inherited a sewing machine off Alex because she, my wife, who, um, she was actually a really good sewer, mm-hmm. very accomplished sewer. So as was my mum, she was a quilt maker. So I've been around textiles, but I just always felt that it was too much to learn at the too later stage. But um, I'm so glad that I did actually dip my toes into it because it's the, yeah, the gift that keeps on giving. And yeah, so even though I've got sewing machines, I just always seem to have them break down on me or get snarled <laughs> up or something goes wrong. So more often than not, you know, I hand stitch the nettle dress, I, I hand stitch the clothing and I don't mind those things being slower and taking uh, longer to do. I'm not at, at this stage really making a living from selling finished items. It's more learning for my own interest kind of thing. So speed isn't, isn't a prerequisite. Um, even though, you know, I do hope to become a, a more proficient and faster weaver. I enjoy improving each of these skills and, and becoming better at them and inevitably a bit faster. But yeah, I haven't, I don't put myself under pressure on that front. Right. So I was very lucky to get a kind of a sneak peek at the nettle dress. Where can folks watch it? I believe it's available in the UK now. Yes, I mean up until now for the last 6 months Dylan the director and I we've we've had no funding or distribution either for the making of the film or what happens to it subsequently so we've really been just doing it um with with the backing of the textile and crafting community it's been a word of mouth phenomenon and Every cinema we, you know, we've just been finding a cinema near where people say, oh, it'd be lovely if you could show it here. And we go there physically, bring the film with us and we do Q&As and we get to meet and chat to people afterwards. They get to feel the dress and then that ripples out and we get another request. So we've done it that way right up until the last month where we now have got a distributor, Dartmouth Films, on board. And, you know, I think it's quite a scoop. We, we can't think of a film that's so specifically about craft and about process actually breaking through into a more mainstream audience. So that's been wonderful. So, yeah, we have our official launch next week in the UK, and then it's going to be um, in 80 plus cinemas in the, the weeks following it. Um, and that's a UK and Ireland distribution deal. So we have fans and followers from all around the world, a lot of people in America and Canada, a lot of people in America and Canada doing amazing things with nettles there as well. It's um, So what we're hoping to do is that 
alongside the physical screenings that we're doing in the, the UK, we're going to do more online screenings. We've tried to concentrate on the physical screenings because it's just been this wonderful communal event where we get to all meet each other and the audience get to meet each other afterwards. We always um, hang around and chat afterwards, which has really been in the spirit of it. But in order to get other people from other countries to see it, we're going to be doing a series of online uh, screenings over the next few months, really. So to follow the film, we're on Instagram, Nettle Dress Film. And we've also got a website, uh, netteldress.org. So everything to do with the film to watch the trailer, to pick up the latest news and find out where you can see it. Uh, those are the, the, the two best places to go to. That's wonderful. We'll have them in the show notes as well so that people can just click through. Thank you, Anne. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and for telling me about the process of this extraordinary dress. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for reaching out and inviting me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks to Trinway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. <laughs>